30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you've left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard Human beings are made of stories. We all have a story we tell ourselves over and over that we call our identity. There are the favorite stories we tell at parties, with old friends on first dates, the tales that spring to mind and leave us hovering on the edge of a conversation, waiting for the moment when we get to go, oh, that's like this one time when I was. But the stories we tell to ourselves and about ourselves are vastly outnumbered by the stories other people tell. The ones where we play the lead and the ones where we're just supporting characters. The stories that paint us as we dream of being seen, as well as the gossipy, unflattering ones we hope no one is whispering behind our backs. But all these stories surround, spill back upon, and spring forth from the unique well that is a human being. And when we die, these stories are what we leave behind. They are our truest legacy. Even wealth, houses, heirlooms, and assets are little more than props. Their importance held wholly in the story, this used to belong to. My grandma died last week. Her end was unpleasant, and for several years now, she herself had been looking to finish out her epilogue and close the book. I'm sad, but not in the way you might think. My grandma was old, her time had come, and so I'm not mourning the fact that she is no longer here. No, what makes me sad is that I don't get to tell her story in the way I wish it could have been told. I wish she was here to help me tell this story. I wish she was here in the way she was years ago, still bright and quick and irreverent and wild as ever, putting this story together in her own words, capturing her essence with a sense of humor I can only hope to convey in my humble imitation, knowing full well it will be a far cry from the real thing. But this is how these things go. The stories of our lives contain cliffhangers we'll never resolve, twists and turns we wish were a straight line, and missing chapters and misprints we'll never untangle. I've been lucky to have my father and both his parents appear on this podcast, speaking their own stories. I feel a strange, intangible regret that I was not able to have my mother or her mother appear on this podcast. My mother died before the podcast began, and my grandmother was already too far gone to be a good guest. But as a wizard, a son, a grandson, a podcast host, and most importantly, a storyteller, I can share my own story, the secondhand legend, misremembered, incomplete, and wildly embellished of who my grandma was to me. This is the story of Sylvia K. Presson, and I call it 
how to eat in restaurants on your own. from San Jose. By the time I was old enough to remember anything, my grandmother's name was Kay. Previously, it had been Sylvia, but she never liked that name, so she ditched it and went by her middle name instead. I had another set of grandparents who lived in Michigan that we'd see for Christmas each year. They lived in the same house my father grew up in, the one my grandfather designed himself, and were in many ways the archetypal grandparents. Their house was a labyrinth of mid-century modern furniture with dusty board games and toys from the 1960s squirreled away in the basement. They happily gave us Christmas presents, which we greedily unwrapped in front of their glittering tree, a perfect picture of the middle-class American dream. And then I had Grandma Kay from San Jose, the other grandma, the lone grandma, who didn't come as part of a package set. No cardigan grandpa with pockets full of Werther's originals trailing dutifully behind her. No, that was not Grandma Kay. Grandma Kay didn't believe in Christmas. We grandkids already had enough stuff. Too much stuff, if you asked her. I think there might have been a Christmas or two where we were informed she'd made some donation in our names. But even that was erratic, if it even occurred at all. She wasn't a miserly Scrooge or an old crank. She just didn't like the commercialism of Christmas and wasn't going to take part in it. Whining grandkids be damned. Growing up in Indiana, San Jose was significantly further away than Michigan. So while I saw my other grandparents on Thanksgiving and Christmas, every year like clockwork, Grandma Kay was more like a comet, appearing at odd intervals. She'd arrive wearing colorful scarves and patterned flowing fabrics, and make it clear she was as much on vacation in our city as she was here to visit us. She'd indulge in her favorite activities, browsing bookstores, sitting in cafes, getting lost, wandering on her own, and then come back home to show us the gifts she'd bought for herself, never us, and share her strange mix of contradictory influences. I remember when she found out we never had pot roast since my mother didn't cook red meat in the house, so she set out to remedy that by cooking up a roast. She was never a gourmet cook, so the fact that I can't remember the roast itself, only her excitement in serving it, is probably an accurate review. She sang and played piano, the piano my non-musical family inherited from her but never used. She herself joked that her favorite movies were the slow, boring, foreign ones where not much happened. I remember her saying that if there was a movie about a blind monk who became friends with an orphan boy from the nearby village, and it was set in Nepal and over three hours long, well, that just sounded like a perfect movie to her. But her other favorite movie was Cheech Marin's Born in East L.A. My grandma taught English as a second language, and for many years, she taught ESL in the jails. That movie, 
a 1980s comedy Cheech made without Chong about a case of mistaken identity where a Mexican-American who speaks no Spanish gets deported to Mexico, resonated with the Latino population of the San Jose penal system, and my grandma watched it with them on numerous occasions. So that's a memory I have of my grandma, watching a silly Cheech Marin comedy she'd previously watched alongside imprisoned gang members, laughing and joking with all of them. Which, in the strange way stories reveal themselves more fully upon completion, serves as a bit of foreshadowing, given the key role Mexico would play in my relationship with my grandma. Part 2. Anamales and Mezcal At some point in my childhood, Grandma Kay from San Jose relocated to Oaxaca, Mexico. She spoke Spanish with all of the fluency and eloquence you'd expect from someone who still pronounced it quesadilla, but she also wasn't just some rich gringo tourist. First, she wasn't rich. And second, she despised the communities in Mexico where rich white people hid away in their sun-bleached alcoholism and only interacted with the Mexicans as servants and help. She chose Ciudad de Oaxaca because it was home to a particularly active community of expats, other older weirdos and travelers who'd lived fascinating lives and retired to Oaxaca because they themselves were not nearly finished with being fascinating. My grandma started a business, which I'll put in scare quotes since I'm not sure it ever turned a profit. She decided to import enamales, the iconic, colorful, carved animal sculptures ubiquitous in Mexican markets. I don't know the ins and outs of her business, but my own childhood home soon had more than a few anamales, some of which were gifts, while others I suspect my grandma merely offered my mom at a discount. Grandma Kay had been living in Oaxaca for a few years when a plan was hatched for me to go visit. It was the summer between eighth grade and high school. I was 14 years old, and I just started exploring weed and psychedelics. And now I was flying on a plane by myself to live in Oaxaca for a month with my kooky grandma. Since I was an unaccompanied minor, a woman with the Mexican airline met my flight at the gate in Mexico City and escorted me to my next flight. My shock when she lit a cigarette while strolling through the airport was quickly surpassed when she proceeded to offer me a cigarette. I politely declined. After my grandma met me at the airport, our first stop was the Zocalo, the public square filled with fountains and trees and sidewalk cafes that was the social center of Oaxaca. They were having a mezcal festival, mezcal being the official beverage of the state of Oaxaca. As we navigated the crowded square and the numerous stalls serving every variety of mezcal, my grandma found a good one and said, here, let's get a sample. I gently reminded her, um, grandma, I'm only 14. To which she laughed and said, Lord, Devin, you're taller than all the Mexicans. That won't be a problem. And she was right. It was not. I spent the rest of that month enjoying hours-long lunches with my grandma, drinking Mexican beers like Sol and Corona from ice-cold mugs. I met her expat friends, former travel photographers and ACLU attorneys and low-key philanthropists helping build libraries out in the impoverished pueblos. I met her friend Stuart, 
a 90-year-old psychologist who'd been living his life as a gay man since World War II and had opened the first free mental health clinic in Haight-Ashbury in the 1960s before moving to the Castro in the 70s where he lived next to Harvey Milk's camera store. I took Spanish lessons with her friend Hector, a Mexican poet who lived in a meager studio apartment but was delighted to take us out to the pueblos where we saw waterfalls and ate goat tacos from market vendors during the day, then went back to a tin-roofed house to sit outside with his friends, drinking from a dusty, unlabeled mezcal bottle under the stars. There was a cinema in Oaxaca made from an old converted aqueduct. They'd filled it with folding chairs and showed movies each night, which any other month would have been in Spanish. But I just so happened to arrive the month the theme was American movie classics. And so I got to watch King Kong, Casablanca, and The Godfather with Spanish subtitles, then talk about the films late into the night while sitting at a sidewalk cafe drinking rum and Cokes with my grandma and her friends. My grandma loved to sit at restaurants and talk. It was one of the things she loved most about Mexican culture. No fast, casual, in and out, rush, rush, rush. Just four-hour lunches where you end up ordering dinner before you bother to get out of your seat. And it was during those long, lazy meals that I got to know who my grandmother was. Part three, eating in restaurants on your own. My grandfather died shortly after my parents met, long before I was born. He was an engineer with the Navy and by all accounts was likely autistic. This was the 50s and 60s, the post-war American dream of three kids, a white picket fence, and games of bridge with the neighbors. My grandmother said that when they went to go play bridge, he was the only one who cared more about the game than the socializing. Or as she put it, he'd have been perfectly happy playing bridge with a bunch of robots. As a kid, I knew my grandfather smoked and he died of cancer, but that was about it. Grandma Kay was an independent entity, her background mysterious and obscure, and I had a childlike understanding of what had occurred. Which makes sense, seeing as I was literally a child. But as I became a teen, and then on into my 20s and 30s, I grew my own relationship with my grandma, enjoying long lunches in Mexico, California, Texas, and the other places we ended up. And it was there that I ended up learning more of the story. And in the process, seeing her as more of a person. She grew up in Kirkwood, Missouri, a suburb of St. Louis. Her parents divorced, which was neither as common nor as socially acceptable back then. She suspected her mother might have been a lesbian at heart, but of course it was never something she pursued. At 18, my grandma joined a touring opera company, and it was there she met homosexuals. All of the chorus members and dancers were homosexuals. She realized what a naive, sheltered life she'd lived until then, but she was excited to sing and explore the world. She met my grandfather and settled down to the 1950s domestic bliss idealized by sitcoms like Leave it to Beaver. But what I only learned as an adult was how in actuality, that time looked a lot more like the early seasons of Mad Men with the turbulence of societal change simmering beneath the sitcom surface. I still don't know the whole story, but the impression I got 
was that as the 60s wore on into the 70s, my grandmother wanted to explore the world and try new things. And my grandfather, not so much. He was happy playing bridge with robots. While the cancer was the story I knew as a kid, speaking with her in cafes as we picked out half-finished plates of fries, I learned they'd been inching towards divorce, that my grandfather told her he actually preferred dying of cancer to getting divorced, and that they traveled to the Philippines to see a psychic surgeon, which was a thing in the 70s. After my grandpa died, my grandma dated. Jazz critics and alcoholics and other more avant-garde types. One time, when I hesitantly mentioned that I practiced non-monogamous relationships, my grandma waved her hand dismissively and said, Oh, that? We were all doing that back in the day. I never met any of my grandma's boyfriends, or at least none that I can recall. I always knew her as an independent woman, setting off into the world to explore on her own, without the least hesitance to talk to a stranger or crack a joke with a server. Even though her Spanish was atrocious, her laugh was infectious, and the woman at the laundromat, the fruit vendor at the market, and the servers at her favorite cafes all smiled when they saw her coming. As her grandson, I was mortified on multiple occasions by the boldness with which she approached strangers. Walking through San Francisco's touristy fisherman's wharf, I blushed as she interrupted a woman leading a walking tour to ask, Excuse me, excuse me, where is that place with the drink? You know, the famous one. But then the woman knew she was talking about the Buena Vista, famous for their Irish coffees, and happily gave us directions. She stuck her head into storefront church services in my Brooklyn neighborhood, asked the rental car employee where the best barbecue could be had in Texas, and even got a personal tour of a museum's private collection because the man she stopped for directions was the director of the museum. My grandma stayed in youth hostels into her 70s, rented a room at a student co-op when she visited me in Texas, was happy to drink margaritas on the porch with my friends, teasing them about how their cigarettes smelled kind of funny, because of course, they weren't cigarettes. She lived in Thailand for long stretches, staying in modest rooms with little more than dog-eared books on Buddhism and some old clothes. In fact, she was the one who invited me to travel with her in Thailand, only to decide later she wasn't up for the long flight anymore, leaving me and my friend to travel to Thailand on our own, one of the pivotal experiences of my early 20s. But while she was passionate about the things she loved, she was equally vocal about all she despised. And there was little she hated more than California's suburban sprawl. A diehard pedestrian the whole time I knew her, she hated walking through traffic-congested streets with few sidewalks only to end up in a bland corporate coffee shop. She mocked the people her age with no adventure or curiosity left, sitting around trying to remember what the nursing home cafeteria served for dinner last week or listing off the medications they were now taking. One of the things she admired about the culture she frequented was how the Mexicans and the Thais could sit on a bench and do nothing. The slowness, the presence, the lack of distraction. She'd point out people sitting and staring off into space, never a phone in sight, and say how important that was. And so she spent a lot of time in restaurants doing just that, watching people, staring off into space, thinking about the ways of the world. 
Of course, she also spent a lot of time in restaurants because she loved to eat. An adventurous eater, she also enjoyed simple pleasures. Hamburgers, donuts, pie. Annoyed with the crunchy, healthy California types, she once told me how much she hated when I was a vegan, vegan, in ninth grade. Oh boy, Devin, I don't think you ever knew how much I hated you back when you were a vegan. She also hated when people talked about health food. If someone came over and said, ooh, that's so healthy about something she was eating, she'd give them a serious look and say, ugh, I know, but I think I'm just going to eat it anyway. One time, she was living in a rented room far away from family on Thanksgiving. She bought a pie and ate the whole thing over the course of the day. Damn it, Devin, she laughed. I'm 72. If I want to eat a whole pie by myself, I'm darn well going to do it. Independence brings freedom, which is something she relished. No one to report back to, no obligations, no one telling her what to do. But the other side of independence is loneliness. And that was something she was well acquainted with. It was the price she paid for her independence. And while she got very good at chatting with baristas and making her own way, it was a lifestyle choice that came with consequences. Part 4 In the End My grandma's life had exciting chapters, filled with travel and adventure, and less exciting ones spent trudging around California's suburban sprawl, killing time in Starbucks, wishing she was somewhere else, anywhere else. I'd call her and she'd pick up the phone, clearly excited to have someone to talk to, a brief respite from the surrounding tedium. As she was less able to travel and do the things she enjoyed, I found myself catching her in dreary moments, feeling down, but still eager to hear my voice. We'd talk, and at some point, she'd crack up and exclaim, Okay, now, Devin, that was my laugh for the day. I try to get a laugh in every day, and I'm so glad you called and gave me one. Then my mom died, and things took a turn. I think for my grandma, my mother represented a source of stability, a support beam in her mental landscape. Her various fears about aging, money, her other daughter's well-being, and so on, we're all held at bay just by knowing that my mom existed and my mom could help manage those things. And then my mom was gone. The support beam vanished and the walls came crashing down. Her lifelong fear was getting dementia and living in a nursing home. She'd joke with me again and again about how I should take her out to the woods and let the wolves get her before that happened. Take me out back and shoot me. But after my mom died, her fears became a self-fulfilling prophecy. She became so obsessed with her fear of getting dementia, she acted as if she had it. Our conversations got more erratic, late night phone calls where I had to calm her down as I myself was trying to stay calm and figure out what the hell was happening. Her fears about money, nursing homes, and her memory played out in endless loops as she repeated herself again and again, seeking assurance she'd never receive because she wasn't listening to anyone else. And for me, the worst of it all was her sense of humor was gone. No more bright cackles, 
no gratitude for getting her laugh for the day, just ignoring my jokes and getting back on the same endless track of fears and repetition. I don't want to spend too much time on this part of the story, mainly because it sucks. But what I do want to express is my own frustration with the situation. For the last few years, I've felt trapped between an idealized fantasy and a grim reality. In the fantasy version of my life, I went to my grandmother's nursing home and enacted her oft-stated wish. I unleashed the wolves, put a bull in her head, gloriously and nobly ending her suffering and delivering on my promise. But reality doesn't work that way. There is no legal framework allowing me or my family to just end her life. And while part of me sincerely wanted to do so, there wasn't a world in which I boarded a plane, signed in at the front desk of the nursing home, then walked back to my grandma's room and held a pillow over her face until she stopped moving. A bit dark, no? Well, believe me, I get it. I've lived with these dark thoughts for years. The frustration of knowing she was in the exact hell she'd always wished to avoid, but that it was her life and her choices that led her directly to this fate, that was hard. So that's why when she fell a few weeks ago and broke her femur, my family knew the end was near, and this was precisely what she wanted. That's why when I received the text saying she died in the night, I didn't mourn her death, because she'd been dead for years. She'd been dead since her sense of humor died. Instead, I knew the next step wasn't mourning, but eulogizing. I wanted to tell her story. Part 5. Legacy. I made this episode for me. I wanted to tell my grandma's story, but I knew the only way I could do that was by telling my story. The story of how I knew her and what she meant in my life. And while I hope you got something out of this as well, I'm also doing my best to tell the story I know she would have enjoyed. Thankfully, unlike life, stories have editors. We select the key moments and critical memories, shining them up to brilliant brightness while letting the other details fade away. My grandma was far from perfect. In fact, when the stock market was booming in the late 90s, she told my family she'd buy us a kayak if the S&P went above a certain level. It did, but she never bought us the freaking kayak. For years, no, make that decades, I teased her about it, playing it up and acting like the key tragedy of my entire existence was how my mean old grandma refused to buy my family the kayak she promised us. She'd laugh and hoot and say, well, Devin, are you ever going to let me live that one down? And to that, I say, no, grandma, even in death, even in your eulogy, I will still tease you about that kayak. Maybe one of these days, I'll buy myself a kayak. I know if I do, I'll think about her every time I put it in the water. And reflecting on this supremely ironic memorial, I'll get my laugh for the day. I'll think about my grandma when I travel, when I watch slow foreign films, when I drink Mexican beer out of icy mugs, when I get embarrassed when my fiancé, who embodies much of my grandma's wackiness and independence, Ask strangers for their opinion on something. I'll think about my grandma every time I eat in a restaurant on my own. 
Over time, I'll let these final years fade away, knowing my grandmother herself would have wanted them on the cutting room floor. Hell, maybe I'll write an alternate ending. So when people ask how my grandma died, I can look them in the eyes and say, I dragged her out into the woods and let the wolves get her. My grandma would have gotten a hoot out of that. But this story isn't done just yet. When my grandma fell, I debated going out to visit her. Was there a Hollywood moment waiting, one full of finality and meaningful connection? Or was it just the grim reality of an old lady staring at a wall, telling people she no longer recognized, I want to die? I'll never know, as I didn't go, and she died soon after. But later this year, I'll be flying to Oaxaca to scatter her ashes. I'll sit in the Zocalo and enjoy long lunches with ice-cold beers and warm glasses of unlabeled mezcal. I'll be going with my fiancé and my cousins, and we'll share stories of Grandma Kay from San Jose, ones I've told time and time again, and new ones I've never heard before, all flowing from the same source, the human being who is, was, and always will be, my Grandma Kay. <laughs> 